We are in a series of messages along with 350 some other churches in this area called Explore God. You may have seen billboards around. Many of you are visiting with us today and we're glad that you're here. So very, very glad. This message will be preached in 10 different churches in Georgetown today. And uh, we join together as the family of God to have conversations about God, to ask the big questions of life, to present messages that spur your curiosity. And so today the question is, is there a God? Does, does he exist? Yeah, I got an email from one of my fellow pastors this week here in town. And he says, I want to help you guys with your sermon on Sunday. And he wrote, yes. <laughs> so somebody mentioned that earlier. I told them that story. And they said, well, why don't you just say yes so we can just go home? You know what I mean? <laughs> but I have all these notes right here. That's right. You know, how people answer this question really does determine a lot about their life, doesn't it? If we choose to believe he doesn't exist, then, well, we're really on our own. And there's really no accountability that we have. There's no ultimate accountability, but it also brings with it this whole idea that there's no real purpose in life. You really are just chemicals and molecules and bacteria and cells. That's really all you are. There's really no hope for the future because when you're dead, you're dead. You're gone, you're gone. But if God does exist, and God is the reason for everything that we see around us, then there is accountability. He created us. But that also brings with it now there's purpose. There's hope. The question, or the problem with this question today is that we as a culture have made your answer to the question, does God exist, is there a God, uh, right and good, no matter how you answer it, whatever's right for you. If you want to be a Christian, fine, well, just let me be an atheist. And let's just be good with that. I'm right and good, you're right and good, let's all just get along. Well, as you can imagine, the problem is that both theism, or the belief that there is a God, and atheism, the belief that there isn't a God, well, they can't both be correct, can they? They really are mutually exclusive statements. We are going to look at uh, the scriptures today, found in Romans 1. There is a um, passage there that the Apostle Paul is writing to the culture of his day, which was somewhat affluent, uh, intellectual, thought they had certain things figured out. And so there's a lot of parallels that we can draw to our culture today, and it's uh, a lot of things that we can learn, not only about the world in which we live, but really about how Christians believe and think today also. It's found in Romans 1. We're going to read from 18 to 25. We'll put it on the board here for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through, that, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This passage immediately ties together how a person views truth with the condition of their heart. He says that they suppress truth in unrighteousness. And in fact, it gives us some descriptions of unrighteousness and the activities of unrighteousness. And that's kind of the, the, the points that I want to make today, with the first one being this, the unrighteous suppress truth. It's done from an unrighteous heart. There's something about my own, uh, being the master of my own domain, <laughs> being the one who is in charge of me. That whenever the truth is presented, that there may be a God and I am accountable to a God, I, I, I just really don't want to hear it. Or I just really want to avoid that. Or I really don't want to have that conversation. Because something in my heart says, that's going to cause me to change. And this passage makes the claim that the evidence points to the existence of God so strongly that the only way a person would not believe is because there is a heart that seeks its own way. I would contend that atheists are not atheists as a result of an intellectual pursuit of truth. <laughs> Last week I asked you if you were interested in a going, an ongoing search for truth, a quest for truth. If you're intellectually honest, then truth is what you want to know. I don't want to know your opinions. I want to, I want to see the evidence. I want to evaluate the evidence. I want to know what's really True. If you want to pick and choose your beliefs based on how you want to live your life, then you're not really interested in truth, but you're interested in opinions that validate how you want to live. And people who want to live for themselves and for their own pleasures will not want truth and many times are even offended when they confront it and it doesn't agree. And so they, 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 they do want to suppress it, avoid it, squelch it. They want to ignore facts in order to further what it is that they want in their life. We all see it in our culture today. We see it in social issues, economic issues, political issues, even how we look at history. Is there any rewriting of history going on in our world today? People today, in many ways, aren't interested that much in truth. They just want to believe what they want to believe. And besides, what is truth is really in the eyes of the beholder. You have your truth, right? Let me have mine. And when we talk about the existence of God, what subject usually frames the discussion? <laughs> well, where did we all come from? Where did we all come from? If there is a God, we assume that he created all of this. And so for many atheists, what is their number one belief? 
Evolution is kind of like a security blanket for them. In many ways, they've been able to influence the culture to accept evolution as fact without the need for further investigation. Please don't look at the facts. Just believe what the experts in the scientific community say. Right? I could go on about the experts in the scientific community, but I won't, I, won't, I won't tell you that in 2008 they said that there wouldn't be any ice in the Antarctica anymore and there was 60% uh, rise in the ice in the Antarctica in the last year, over a million square miles of ice added to Antarctica. But I'm not going to go into all of the experts in the scientific community this morning. They've been able to frame this argument that evolution is science and creation is religion. One is rooted in scientific evidence and the other is just some philosophical belief that is based on pure faith without any evidence. Well, I'm, this may shock you, but I totally agree with that last statement. Completely agree. Because when it comes to evolution and creation, I would agree that one is rooted in scientific evidence and the other is just some philosophical belief based on pure faith. But it's the other way around from what they believe. The second point is that the unrighteous ignore evidence. For since the creation of the world, his, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. If you're looking for God, you'll find him everywhere. And there is evidence. And now we're going to go into a part of the message where I'm going to make you think that I am very, very smart. But I've read this in other books, okay? I don't claim to be an expert in any of these fields, but here we go. I'm going to give you some evidence for the creation of the world. First of all, we have what is called the fine-tuning of the universe. Dr. Hugh Ross, who is a physis physicist who went on a truth exploration, he says, I, in my physis physicist studies, <laughs> I have come to see that there are many things that I cannot explain. And so I want to know the truth. And after an exhaustive uh, search for truth, he became a Christian and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he has spent his life formulating an organization called Reasons to Believe. And this is part of what he has written. He said this, In 1961, astronomers acknowledged just two characteristics of the universe as fine-tuned to make physical life possible. And this first argument is the fine-tuning of the universe. The more obvious one was the ratio of the gravitational force constant to the electromagnetic force constant. You got that, didn't you? Yeah. I've heard Hugh Ross at two different conferences I've attended, and I've sat there and gone, yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about. He says it cannot differ from its value by any more than one part in 10 to the 40th power or one part in 10,000 trillion, trillion, trillion. In other words, it can't alter just that minute amount without eliminating the possibility for life on this planet. And today, that's in 1961, they found two of those cases. Today, the number of known cosmic characteristics recognized as fine-tuned for life, any conceivable kind of physical life, stands now at 38. 
And of these, the most sensitive is the space energy density or the self-stretching property of the universe. Its value cannot vary by more than one part in 10 to the 120th power and still allow for the kinds of stars and planets physical life requires. Evidence of specific preparation for human existence shows up in the characteristics of our solar system as well. In the early 60s, astronomers could identify just a few solar system characteristics that required fine-tuning for human life to be possible. But by the end of 2001, astronomers had identified more than 150 finely-tuned characteristics. In the 1960s, the odds that any given planet in the universe would possess the necessary conditions to support intelligent physical life were shown to be less than one in 10,000, in 2001, those odds shrank to less than one in a number so large it might as well be infinity. The more we learn about the universe, the more it points to what? <laughs> a creator. A second evidence is called the Cambrian explosion. Some of you heard about this, and I, I don't really like the term that much because Cambrian implies... Uh, an age-old, billions of years old earth, and I'm not necessarily tipping my hand on the belief in that or not, but it, uh, what it does, this is an evolutionist term. And the Cambrian explosion is the sudden geological appearance of most major groups of animals. All of a sudden, within a short time frame, we have the explosion of all the animals on the scene. Now here's one where you'll think I'm really smart, the second law of thermodynamics. You know that one, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a natural scientific law that states that although the total energy in the cosmos remains constant, the amount of energy available to do useful work is always decreasing, degrading, being used up. We know that at the, at the, cur at the current rate of the usage of the world, that it is a planet that is dying. And if you project it out enough years that there will be some point in the future where its existence ceases to be. And so there is this constant degradation going on which flies in the face of a whole evolutionary theory that everything is doing what? Getting better. We also have the problem of spontaneous generation which is this belief that non-living matter became living matter through purely natural processes. So... There was some point in the history of the world where a rock became an amino acid or a cell. One instant it was a rock, the second instance it was a, something that was alive. And of course DNA, scientist Walter Brown points out that DNA can only be produced with the help of at least 20 different types of proteins, but these proteins can only be produced at the direction of DNA. And since it each requires the other, a satisfactory explanation for the origin of one must also explain the origin of the other. And apparently this entire manufacturing system came into existence simultaneously since they need each other, which is the implication for creation. The third point from the scripture is that the unrighteous profess to be wise. Professing to be wise, it says, they became fools. Over the last couple of weeks, I've become acquainted with a video called Evolution Versus God. Uh, it's a YouTube video. You just go on YouTube and type in Evolution Versus God. It's about 40 minutes. It's just a man on the street interview uh, asking questions about evolution. Uh, but he's not asking just your average person. He's on a college campus, and he's only asking science professors and graduate students in science. 
people who profess to be wise. But they can't answer these questions. And they come up with theories and philosophies rather than observable scientific evidence. Most of the graduate students simply say they trust the experts in the scientific community to know what they're talking about. Point four, the unrighteous worship the natural. They say, it says they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. What is the center of the world to the atheist? We are. <laughs> mankind. Himself. And to serve mankind becomes the ultimate and only goal for life. And to be honest, when mankind is the center of all things, that's a dangerous philosophical view of life, isn't it? Because if mankind is the center of all existence, then mankind is something that we need to continually work to perfect and progress and move towards a more perfect place on this earth. The planet then becomes something that we have to do everything that we can to engineer it to be eternal. This worldview, where man is elevated as the ultimate source of reality, this worldview then says society is now more important than the individual. The individual is just something that we use to make society and mankind better. And this worldview has given rise to some of the most horrific societies and atrocities history has ever seen. We do whatever is necessary to move mankind towards this ultimate goal of peace and utopia. And those who don't believe in this glory of humankind, well, what do we need to do with them? Huh. Well, we need to remove them. That's why Nazis saw exterminating Jews as productive. That's why Stalin and Lenin killed more than 50 million. It's why Masatung killed at least that many. They saw themselves as the ultimate authority in this, this constant movement of the classes of people towards a perfect world. World history shows us that when man is left to himself, he acts in evil ways. Is mankind basically intrinsically born with a bent towards evil and selfishness? I mean, if you encounter somebody and they say, you know, I believe that mankind is good, I, would always, I always challenge that with, well, why don't we just remove all the laws from society? Everybody can do whatever they want to do. Because you're going to be kind and generous and helpful to your neighbor, aren't you? You're going to drive an appropriate speed, aren't you? We don't need laws. You're all good people. When we exchange the glory of God for the natural, things fall apart. That's why in Colossians it says that in Christ all things hold together. And the fifth point, the unrighteous believe lies. For they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You may be a Christian here today and... Um, And you're hearing this, and inside you're saying, that's right, tell them, Pastor. Let them know. 
you're glad that you're not an atheist. You've come to believe the truth about all these things. And is it all right if I challenge you a little bit today? You know, Pastor Craig Groeschel up at Life Church in uh, Edmond, Oklahoma, wrote a book a few years ago. And I read, I saw the title of the book and it intrigued me, so I bought the book and then I started reading the book and it just not intrigued me, it messed with me. You ever have a book just kind of mess with you? Here's the title of the book. The Christian Atheist. And here's the subtitle. When you believe in God but live as if he doesn't exist. I'm going to give you the chapter title so you don't have to buy the book, okay? <laughs> chapter 1 starts this way. You believe in God, but don't really know Him. Are there people today who believe the story of Jesus but really don't know Jesus? I know the story of Jesus. He came from heaven and He died on a cross for the salvation of sins and the forgiveness of sins. Of sins. He rose from the dead to give new life to his followers. I believe that story. I'm a Christian. And rightfully so. They may be Christian. But do they know Jesus personally, intimately? Have they had a conversation with him? Have they heard him? Are they hungry to, to, to know about, do they read about him? Chapter 2, you believe in God but are ashamed of your past. Wow. If we believe in God, we're new creations, right? We are brand new. We're transformed. You believe in God but not in prayer. <laughs> oh, I believe in God. I just don't like to pray. Christian atheist. You believe in God, but won't forgive. I'm sorry, sir, the, the, the pain is too great. You don't know exactly what happened to me. I can't forgive them. Do you believe that Jesus forgives you? Oh, of course I believe Jesus forgives me. Something doesn't match there. Well, if I haven't hit home yet, here we go. You believe in God, but you still worry. Heaviness just floated upon the room. <laughs> you believe in God, but you still worry. And worry is nothing more than the expression of fear. I've not given you a spirit of fear. You believe in God, but you pursue personal happiness at any cost. You believe in God, but trust more in money. And the last chapter is you believe in God, but not in his church. So is there part of you that you could say, are you a Christian who believes in God, but lives as if he doesn't really exist? 
The scripture we looked at today exposes the heart of the unrighteous or the person living unto himself. And I have to ask myself, do I see these things in me? Do they raise their ugly head in me from time to time? The suppression of truth. Am I still on a truth search or have I decided that I've found it all? I know everything. Have you ever met a Christian that knows everything? Be honest. I meet a lot of those kind of Christians from time to time. These are people who've decided that they're the source of truth and all you need to know, all you need to do in order to know what's right about anything is to do what? Just ask them. And if you take a different theological position, they beat you back. They don't want to hear any valid arguments to their positions, but enjoy the opportunity to point out where you're failing in your lack and of knowledge. I've come to believe wholeheartedly that truth seekers are lifelong learners. That's what disciples mean, right? Disciple really means learner. Truth seekers are humble people. They're, they're wanting to engage in conversations, in truth-seeking conversations, and they present their views in such grace and such love. They are persuasive people because of their genuine openness to the thoughts of other people. Ignoring evidence. So many Christians today have developed beliefs that fit with our times. Have you ever, had, have you ever known Christians that want to mix the beliefs of Christianity with the popular beliefs of the day? Because the real beliefs of the Bible and Scripture seem a little offensive in our culture today, so let's not say Let's not talk about those parts. Let's just talk about everybody loving each other. I mean, everybody. And all those things about, well, everything else, let's not talk about. We have theistic evolutionists today who believe God created, so I can walk on that side of the fence, but he used evolution as his way of creating, so I can walk on that side of the fence too. Are Christians ignoring the evidence? What about professing to be wise? Is it my goal to help others see how smart I am? <laughs> now, I wouldn't quite state it that way, but maybe I come across that way. I, I read books so that I can tell others what? That I read. I listen to sermons in order to evaluate the content rather than what it may be that God wants to say to me about my life. Uh, when I was pastor of another church in another state, and I'm not going to tell you which state, it's just a big state on the West Coast, huge state, <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to tell you which one it was. I had a guy in my church who came to church every week with one purpose in mind, and that was to evaluate my sermons. He saw his role as my special helper. <laughs> That's kind of what I called him, not to his face, but you know. I'll never forget, after church one day, he came up to me and he started the conversation with, you used a word today that's not really a word. <laughs> and before I could respond, he said, irregardless...
He said, from now on, just say regardless, not irregardless. It's not a word. Well, you know what? He's right. Yeah, it's not a word. I went and looked it up. Man, I was hoping it was a word. <laughs> but regardless of what really took place, he professed to be wise and he looked like what? A fool. You know, you can look like a fool even when you're right. That's a hard truth. Worshiping the natural, you know, point four. Do Christians worship natural things today? Are, are natural things idol, idols in the life of Christians today? I mean, what, you know, I probably have to throw this in there. You know, what place does money have in your life? This time of year, well, how, how important is football to you? I'm sorry, I threw that one in there for me. <laughs> Feeling guilty. You see, believing in the supernatural God means that we see life through His lens. We notice the beauty of, of creation. We see Him. We see time as this gift He's given to us to be used for His glory. We are free from the worries and the stresses because we've entrusted all things into his loving, watchful care. We're not placing faith in what we can see, feel, and touch. We know how temporary, how trivial, how transient it is, how it builds fear into our life, how it stresses us out. And then finally, believing lies. Are Christians believing lies today? I say this a lot, but it's so true. Satan wants you, Satan's goal really is to get you to believe something that's not true. If he can get you to believe something that's not true, he can build on that. He can build a whole world view upon that. Titus 1.16, oh, it's just so sobering. Listen to this. They profess to know God. But by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Do you believe that God exists today? Huh. Sure. <laughs> Where's the evidence that you believe in a supernatural God? Where, where, where is your freedom? Where is your release? Where is your joy? We've grown so comfortable with a Christianity that is materialistic, hedonistic, stressed out, bound up, proud, and powerless. And we wonder why others don't want to join us in this. <laughs> Would you come and join me in my stressed out, fear-filled, worry-filled, Christian life, you know what I mean? 
Christians sin at about the same rate as non-Christians, statistics show us. I think there ought to be a difference. Maybe that's just me. You may be here today and you're skeptical, you're skeptical of the whole Christian belief system. You've, you've watched the lives of Christians. You haven't really kind of liked that very much, what you've seen, and you're really skeptical about the claims of the Bible. You've been taught that evolution is science and only ignorant people believe in creation and you've believed it even though you've not really truly examined the evidence. And even though there's a lot of pain in your past, you prefer living for your own personal happiness than being accountable to a God. You don't want to be under anybody else's authority. You want to do things your way. And if that's kind of your life today, I'm not here today to try to persuade you to adopt a new set of beliefs, but to let you know that God not only exists, but he wants to know you. And he wants you to know him. He loves you in a way that no human could ever love you. His presence in your life can make the world and the natural look so temporary and trivial. And the invitation today is more of an introduction. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine that has made all the difference in my life. I found Jesus when I was 14 years old. And I can only testify to this fact that one day, no, one moment, I was lost, as lost could be. And in a moment, I was as forgiven and clean and found as I could ever be because of the work and the transforming power of Jesus Christ in my life. You can deny my beliefs. You can deny what I've said. You can deny the Bible, but you cannot deny my experience with a God who has changed my life. A life that was headed this way has ended up in a far different place. Jesus is who he said he was. He did come and live among us. He is the savior of the world, the sustainer of all things, the great forgiver, the great life giver. And I want you to know him. I want you to know him. Father,